0: Chapter Thirty Two of This Country of Ours. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This Country of Ours by H. E. Marshall. Chapter Thirty Two King Philip's War. Meanwhile, the people of New England had another foe to fight you remember that the Pilgrim Fathers had made a treaty with the Indians when they first arrived. As long as the old chief Massasoit lived, he kept that treaty, but now he was dead, and his son Philip ruled. You will wonder, perhaps, why an Indian chief should have a name like Philip. But Philip's real name was Metacomet. He, however, wanted to have an English name, and to please him the English called him Philip, and by that name he is best known. For a time all went well, but very soon Philip and his tribe grew restless and dissatisfied. When they saw the white men coming in always greater and greater numbers, and building towns and villages further and further into the land, they began to fear them, and long to drive them away, and at length all their thoughts turned to war. Friendly Indians and praying Indians— as those who had become Christians were called, came now to warn the pale-faces, and tell them that Philip was gathering his braves, and that he had held a war-dance lasting for several weeks. In the night, too, people in lonely farms awoke to hear the wild sound of drums and gunshots. But still the English hoped to pacify Philip, so they sent him a friendly letter telling him to send away his braves, for no white man wished him ill." "'but Philip returned no answer. "'Then one Sunday while the people were at church "'and the houses were all deserted, "'Indians attacked the little town of Swansea, "'burning and plundering. "'The next day and the next they returned, "'Tomahawk and Firebrand in hand, "'and so the war began. "'Other tribes joined with King Philip, "'and soon New England was filled with terror and bloodshed.' The men of New England gathered in force to fight the Indians, but they were a hard foe to fight, for they never came out to meet the pale-faces in open field. At first, when the British began to settle in America, they had made it a rule never to sell firearms to the Indians. But that rule had long ago been broken through. Now the Indians not only had guns, but many of them were as good shots as the British. Yet they kept to their old ways of fighting and, stealthily as wild animals, they skulked behind trees, or lurked in the long grass, seeking their enemies. They knew all the secret forest ways, they were swift of foot, untiring, and mad with the lust of blood. So from one lonely village to another they sped swiftly as the eagle, secretly as the fox. And where they passed they left a trail of blood and ashes." at night around some lonely homestead all would seem quiet. Far as the eye could see there would be no slightest sign of any red man, and the tired labourer would go to rest feeling safe, with his wife and children beside him. But ere the first red streaks of dawn shivered across the sky he would be awakened by fiendish yells, ere he could seize his gun the savages would be upon him, and the sun when it rose— Would show only blackened blood-stained ruins, where but a few hours before a happy home had been. Yet with this red terror on every side, the people went on quietly with their daily life. On weekdays they tilled their fields and minded their herds. On Sundays they went as usual to church, leaving their homes deserted. But even to church they went armed, and while they knelt in prayer or listened to the words of their pastor, their guns were ever within reach of their hands. One Sunday, while in the village of Hadley the people were all at church, the Indians crept up in their usual stealthy fashion. Suddenly the alarm was given, and, seizing their guns, which stood by their sides, the men rushed out of the meeting-house. But they were all in confusion, the attack was sudden, they were none of them soldiers, but merely brave men ready to die for their homes and their dear ones, and they had no leader. Then suddenly a stranger appeared amongst them. He was dressed in quaint old-fashioned clothes. His hair and beard were long and streaked with grey. He was tall and soldierly, and his eyes shone with the joy of battle. At once he took command. Sharply his orders rang out. Unquestioningly the villagers obeyed, for he spoke as one used to command. They were no longer an armed crowd, but a company of soldiers, and— Fired by the courage and skill of their leader, they soon put the Indians to flight. When the fight was over the men turned to thank their deliverer, but he was nowhere to be found. He had vanished as quickly and mysteriously as he had come. "'What did it mean?' they asked. "'Who was the strange leader? "'Had God in His mercy sent an angel from heaven to their rescue?' "'No one could answer their questions.' and many decided that indeed a miracle had happened, and that God had sent an angel to deliver them. This strange leader was no other than the regicide, Colonel Goff, who, as we know, had for many years lived hidden in the minister's house. From his attic window he had seen the Indians creeping stealthily upon the village, and when he saw the people standing leaderless and bewildered, he had been seized with his old fighting spirit, and had rushed forth to lead them then the danger being over he had slipped quietly back to his hiding-place there he remained hidden from all the world as before until he died and was buried beside his friend autumn passed and winter came and the indians gathered to their forts for the bare forests gave too little protection to them in their kind of warfare when spring came they promised themselves to come forth again and make an end of the pale-faces. But the pale-faces did not wait for spring. The Indians had gathered to the number of over three thousand into a strong fortress. It was surrounded by a marsh, and the only entrance was over a bridge made by a fallen tree. This fortress the New Englanders decided to attack and take, so a thousand strong they set out one morning before dawn and— After hours of weary marching through the snow, they reached the fort. Across the narrow bridge they rushed, and although many of their leaders fell dead, the men came on, nothing daunted. A fierce fight followed, for each side knew that they must win or die. Shut in on all sides by impassable swamps, there was no escape. But not till dark was falling did the white men gain the victory. The ground was strewn with dead and dying, and in the gathering darkness the remaining Indians stole quietly away, and vanished like shadows. Then the New Englanders set fire to the wigwams, and, taking their wounded, marched back to their headquarters. This was a sad blow to the Indians, but it did not by any means end the war which, as spring came on, broke out again in full fury. But gradually the white men got the upper hand. Instead of attacking, the red men fled before them. They lost heart, and began to blame King Philip for having led them into war, and at length he was slain by one of his own followers. Soon after this the war came to an end, but whole tracts of New England were a desert, a thousand of the bravest and best of the young men were killed. Many women and children, too, had been slain, and there was hardly a fireside in the whole of Massachusetts where there was not a vacant place. Numbers of people were utterly ruined, and the colonies were burdened with a great debt. As to the Indians, their power was utterly broken, and their tribes were almost wiped out. Except the Mohegans, who had remained friendly throughout the war, there were few Indians left in south New England, where there was never again a war between white men and Indians." End of chapter 32, read on June 10, 2009, in San Diego, California.